dear ones, we are continuing today our series through prayer, looking at what uh, the Word of God teaches in regard to this very important issue. I've performed a test on myself uh, quite often, and I uh, submit the same test to you. Um, I think it's very helpful because I see prayer as being the very core of our Christian life. If you want to evaluate where you are in your relationship with the Lord, I submit to you, begin by considering your prayer life. You want to kind of get a, a, a finger up on the pulse of where you are in your walk with the Lord. Look at your prayer life. It will reveal either a rich communion and fellowship with God or a distant communication as with a stranger. It will either manifest a lukewarm complacency for God or a burning passion to know Him, to grow in Him, and to serve Him. Listen to your prayers, dear ones, and you learn whether God is great or small in your sight by how you pray, by what you bring before Him. Whether He is a heavenly Santa Claus or a heavenly Father. Whether He is holy and to be treated with the utmost reverence or rather someone you can kind of brush off and ignore and neglect. If you want to see where you are in your relationship with God, dear ones, listen to yourself and see whether you give excuses as to why you cannot find enough time to spend with your Father in prayer. Listen to your excuses. But know Note how you have time for TV, visiting friends, and doing all the things you need to do. Dear ones, this is a very important issue with me as your pastor. You may mouth a very good profession. In Jesus Christ, you may have theological soundness. You may be able to debate. You may be able to explain and articulate Calvinism and defend it against Arminianism. You may be able to defend infant baptism against simply believer's baptism. You may be able to lay out very well for someone to understand the regulative principle and how it applies to all areas of worship. And praise God you can. But dear ones, if you're a stranger before God, God's not going to bless it. God's not going to use it if He is a stranger to you and you to Him. If the Lord is to change your life and mine, if the Lord is to bring revival as we have prayed even this Lord's day, 
the church cannot be a stranger to prayer to fervent and persevering prayer prayer must become as necessary to us as the very air we breathe prayer must become as necessary to us as the food we need to sustain our bodies the word of God and prayer are our life that is how God communicates his grace his life unto us is through these means last Lord's Day we considered from Luke 11 those gracious affections that God desires that we bring with us into his presence when we pray we're to be asking according to God's will not according to our own will we're to be seeking God in persevering prayer like Esau I'm sorry like Elijah not like Esau like Elijah we are to be knocking on the gates of heaven with great urgency like the Canaanite woman who prayed that her daughter might be delivered from demon possession those are the gracious affections that God calls us to bring into his presence and as we consider now Matthew chapter 6 I'd like to focus first of all the first part of the uh, chapter on the motives that God gives to us as we pray those motives are listed for us first of all the motives that we ought not to have and the negative what should we not be doing as we approach God in prayer what motives does God desire for us to crucify and to leave behind as we come to the Lord in prayer verses 1, 5, and 7 take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven verse 5 and when you pray you shall not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men assuredly I say to you they have their reward and then verse 7 but when you pray do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do for they think they will be heard for their many words Dear ones, it cannot be out of pride to impress others or ourselves that we come to God in prayer. That cannot be our motive. We must not be seeking to make a reputation for ourselves, a name for ourselves, when we come into prayer with God. We must not come into God's presence simply to please others just because we think that others expect us to do so that cannot be our primary motive in coming to God in prayer for all of these are self-seeking all of these are self-centered and selfish God 
commands that we are not to pray in order to be seen by men. That even includes myself as being a man. I am not to pray in order to flatter myself or to flatter others or to impress others. Rather, God says, the Lord Jesus says in this chapter, prayer must be entered into for the purpose of communion and fellowship with God. That is the primary motive that we should flee to God because we want to be in His presence. We want to enjoy the living God. Dear ones, we're going to be as God's people in His presence for all eternity. Some of, some of us would, if, if, if we were to consider seriously how much time we spend with the Lord in prayer, someone might wonder, does this person really want to spend all eternity in the presence of God? And he considers it such a burden and a chore to find time to spend in God's presence on a daily basis? And so we come to commune with God in that secret place within our own soul. It may be even at times in a very noisy place outwardly, but we go within the closet that secret place within to commune and to fellowship with God. Where we can cast out all the distractions, all the preoccupations and business of life and focus our attention upon simply worshiping and loving and enjoying God. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Are you enjoying God? Do you find God a delight? If not, are you praying, Lord, this is not in my heart right now. I want you to be my joy and my delight. And you know, something wonderful happens when God becomes our joy and our delight. All of those trials and problems of life take on a completely different significance. Because we see things from heaven's perspective. Not from our perspective. We see them from God's perspective The Lord also says in verse 7 with regard to prayer that we are not as his children to use vain repetitions as the heathen do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. This particular injunction from the Lord forbids all unintelligible worship. We are to worship God knowing what we are doing because as we know God, 
The knowledge of God changes our life. To approach God in a language which we do not understand is not to worship God as He has commanded. Whether it's within so-called Christian churches speaking in tongues or whether it's in the, uh, the pagan religions of the world who speak in tongues. That is not how God has commanded us to worship Him with unintelligible speech. Even those who had the gift, legitimately had the gift, there was always to be an interpretation so that there was an uh, the opportunity to worship and glorify God on the part of all to know God this particular this particular injunction forbids the formal repeating of prayers without understanding whether it be the rosary or whether it be certain form prayers there's not necessarily if I were to write a prayer out before I came up here and to pray that prayer with meaning from my heart I don't believe that that in of itself is condemned but to go simply through the emotions of praying if it is a form prayer that is condemned that's vain repetition it's meaningless for you to daydream while the minister or elder is praying in front is meaningless repetition for you. You're not praying along with the one who is leading. Children, especially, uh, uh, listen closely. When the minister is praying and, and leading, he's praying for you as well. You are to agree with him. I know that the minister's prayers, the pastor's prayers can be long. But ask God to help you to pray during that time. It's extremely important. And how much more responsible we as adults are then to pray in those situations. To simply utter very uh, casually at the end of a prayer, in Jesus' name can be praying with meaning, meaningless repetition, vain repetition. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Are we simply just putting on a rabbit's foot at the end of the prayer? A magical incantation? That because we utter this phrase automatically, the prayer is going to be blessed? Not unless you understand what it means. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in His authority. To pray in His, His, His person and His work, what He has accomplished on your behalf. That you're not coming to God on the basis of who you are, but you're coming to God on the basis of who Jesus is. And even to say, Amen. That means, Lord... Let it be. Amen. The same word that's used when Jesus says, Verily, verily. Truly, truly. It's saying at the conclusion of your prayer, Lord, it is a truth. Let this happen. Let this be faithful. Be faithful in hearing this prayer. 
And so we pass now uh, into the content of praying as we begin to look at verse 9. Before I go there, let me just uh, indicate verse 8. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Have you ever wondered, why does God want me to pray if He knows the very things I have need of before I pray? What is the purpose of prayer then? Well, the purpose of prayer is not to inform God of anything. It's not to give Him some knowledge that He doesn't already have or possess. What's especially astounding as you think about this whole issue is that Jesus, who was God and man, when you consider all the hours that he spent praying, and he knew the will of God perfectly. And yet he prayed. I mean, we might say, well, one of the reasons that we are to pray is because we don't know God's will and everything. We need God's understanding. Well, here was Jesus, and he knew the will of God. And he spent more time in prayer than, than anyone. All night, praying. Why? Because the essence of prayer is communion and fellowship with a living God. That's the essence. Simply to be there to enjoy God. Verse 9. We read... In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven. We're just going to finish the remainder of this sermon focusing on, on that little phrase, our Father uh, in heaven. The Lord's Prayer is a model prayer, a pattern. It gives you, in summary form, enough information so that you could spend literally hours before God's presence following this particular pattern. I mean, you could pray this prayer literally if you were to read it in just a few seconds. And those who would simply go through the motions of doing so and thinking, well, I prayed today, uh, don't understand what, God, what Christ was doing in giving this particular prayer. It was a model and a pattern, a summary. Like the Ten Commandments are a summary for all of those duties that we owe to God and to man and as we begin to look through uh, the larger catechism. As it explains all of those duties, we're overwhelmed what's in the commandments. So in these petitions of the Lord's Prayer... They are put in summary form so that we could, as I said, uh, pray every day, literally hours before God. The Lord's Prayer, just uh, to give you a very brief synopsis of the, of the petitions here, the Lord's Prayer begins by addressing God, our Father in heaven, then follow six petitions. Three, the first three, first three of which pour forth worship and adoration to God. 
concerning God's name, concerning God's kingdom, and concerning God's will. That's where we begin in prayer. Thy, thy, thy. Not my, my, my. The last three petitions then relate our needs. God does want us to give us and present to Him our needs. He delights to have us bring our needs unto Him. That's a part of prayer. And so we find in the last three petitions a prayer for material needs, our daily bread, a prayer for forgiveness, a petition for forgiveness, and then a petition for holy living. And the prayer concludes by attributing to God the absolute authority glory and kingdom or rule to accomplish all that is prayed for. So let us focus now upon this last part our Father in Heaven. Um, and I would like to, as we do so, see that we answer three questions in regard to this particular introduction, if you will, in prayer. Who God is, who Christ is, and who we are. If we can answer those three questions, we will understand very clearly what is involved in beginning our prayers, Our Father in Heaven. Someone has noted that Father is the Christian name for God. Distinctively, the Christian name for God. I might even go further to say the New Covenant name for God. Though in the Old Testament, God certainly describes His love and care for His people as that of a father for a child, prayers are not addressed to God as Father. Look through the Bible in the Old Testament. See if you can find even one prayer that is addressed to God as Father. Certainly in 2 Samuel 7.16, God says that He will be a father to David's son. In Hosea 11.1, God says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Psalm 103, as we sang this Lord's Day, says that He pities us as a father. Jesus is called in Isaiah 9.6 Father. That particular passage describes to the Lord His deity, that He is God. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
And that's not to say that Jesus Christ is God the Father, as if there's a confusion of the, of the uh, persons within the Trinity. But Jesus Christ is an everlasting Father to his children, to his people, in the way he cares for them. But to find a prayer where God's people address God using that title, Father. You will search a long time and not find any until you come into the New Covenant, the New Testament. Why? What's happened? That now we address the Lord, God Almighty, as our Father. Well, we certainly, I don't think, are, are uh, left in any uh, suspense as to why that's the case. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come. He has, through His work upon the cross, brought us into the family of God so that we are now God's very own children through adoption. The Lord God, in saving and applying redemption to the hearts and lives of His people, first justifies, as a judge, God pardons our iniquities and our sins. All of them. All of them that are past to us. All of them that are present to us. And all the sins we have not yet committed are pardoned by God because He poured out His holy wrath upon His only begotten Son. How He must love you. Not simply to put his son to death. How he must love you to pour out the pangs of hell upon his son in order to declare you pardoned and, and, and righteous before him. He not only pardons in justification, but he clothes you. He declares you to be righteous. He clothes you in Christ's righteousness and then pronounces his sentence. Righteous. Righteous as my only begotten Son. Dear ones, if that does not give you confidence and assurance of God's love, I pray that God grants to you the grace to see, to understand that wondrous truth. But He not only, as, as, as our God, not only as a judge, sitting behind uh, his bench, declares us to be righteous. He comes out from behind that bench. And he throws his arm around us as his people. Those whom he has declared to be righteous, he throws his arm around us. And legally adopts us into his family. You see, it's not good enough for God to simply say that we're righteous. We 
will be the very children of God. God will see to it. And he has done so through Jesus, his only begotten son. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, we find these words concerning our adoption into God's family. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, he grants these privileges in and for his only Son on the basis of what Christ has done for us. To make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Have his name put upon them. Receive the spirit of adoption. Have access to the throne of grace with boldness. That is, with confidence. Are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. That term of endearment. Are pitied, protected, provided for. And yes, chastened by him as by a father. Yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. There is not a greater blessing, dear ones, that God has given to us than in giving Himself unto us. We can talk about all the glorious gifts that God has given to us, but the greatest gift is that He has given Himself unto us. He is our God in a very personal sense. We belong to Him as His children. I'm convinced through years of counseling with people as to problems that they're having in their life, particularly with the area of assurance of their salvation, fears of various kinds that they may plague them, that one of the most important truths that can set people free is to know that God is their Father. And He is not like any Father upon the earth. Sometimes we think, well, and it's been said, and I've heard it said, that somebody cannot learn and cannot understand how God is a perfect Father because they never had a perfect Father. Well, none of us have. But even some have had extremely poor role models. Some have been abused so that the word father to them conjures up in their mind someone who's going to automatically strike them and beat them and abuse them. 
But dear ones, we're not to go to the world in order to understand God the Father. We're to go to His own Word that He has given to us. This is where He explains who He is and how He will treat us, His children. God does not abuse His children. He faithfully disciplines us because He loves us. And He says, What father is there among us who will not do the same if He loves His children? And to withhold the rod, God says, is to hate your child. Now, that's a different philosophy altogether from what the world teaches. But God says, if you withhold it, you hate. But if you apply it faithfully, you love. You love your child. Communicate that to your children, dear ones. Whenever you apply the rod, let them know that this is an indication. They may not understand it at this point, But they will. I'm convinced. Therefore, a period of time, we ceased in applying the rod to our oldest daughter because we thought she had outgrown the rod. And she began to rebel and rebel in certain areas of her life. We had a very godly minister friend who took us aside and said, apply the rod. Do it in love, but apply the rod. What a dramatic change occurred in Jenny's life. And she told us subsequently, told me, Dad, if you would have applied the rod consistently from, from that period in which I was rebelling, I wouldn't have rebelled. I needed the rod. We need the rod from God as well, dear ones. We never outgrow that in God's kingdom and in God's family. We will always need his rod. So is this a Christian prayer? I've heard some say, this is not a Christian prayer because it doesn't mention the name of Jesus. It's a very Christian prayer, dear ones, because we are to address God as our Father and we can only know God as our Father except and only through the work of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 shows us this truth that this is of God's gracious work. It is not something that we have wrought in ourselves. John 1.12 But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're born of God. Hello. 
Never forget, dear ones, what condition you were in before God adopted you into his family. Paul never forgot. In fact, in his letters, he continues to bring up the fact that he was a persecutor of the church. He was the, the uh, chief of sinners because he did so. Why does he bring these up? You'd think that Paul would want to forget about those things. Why? Because it continually reminds Paul of the grace of God, that God has delivered him from those things. Now, we don't have to sensationalize our past, but to occasionally reflect on what God has saved you from is very profitable and beneficial. How merciful God has been to you. In fact, in Ezekiel 16, the picture is painted for us that God in redeeming Israel. How did he find Israel? He finds Israel as a newborn child, unwanted by her mother, cast aside along the side of the road, exposed to the elements in order to die. Our modern terminology would be that she, her mother, aborted her was trying to abort her in the process of doing so. When God walked by and saw this child crying, laying there in her blood, it says, and God took that child and loved her, cleansed her, and raised her and even united himself to her in matrimony. That's the love that God has for us and to reflect on what God has saved us, dear ones, from what God has saved us is extremely important. It probably goes without saying that not everyone is God's child. Not everyone in the world is God's child. In fact, John 8, Jesus says that they're not children of God, they're children of the devil. So you see, there are two kinds of people in the world, according to Jesus. There are those who are the children of God, who have been redeemed by Him, and there are those who are the children of the devil. There, are, there is no, no middle ground. That should also cause us to pray fervently and urgently that God would save our loved ones and family members and friends. Because there is no middle ground. How will you know, dear ones, that God is your Father? How will you have that assurance that God is your Father? Well, let me give you three ways. I think believe are biblical. The first is the promise of God Himself. You know that God is your Father because He has declared Himself to be to all who come to Him through Jesus Christ. 
John 1.12, For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to as many as believe on his name. Galatians 3.26, the word of God teaches, You are all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Do you believe and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you repented and turned from your sins? Are you seeking to walk in obedience to Him? Are you clinging to His promise? When everything else in life seems to be falling apart, are you clinging to His promise and to His Word and to Him that He is your Father, that you have trusted in Christ? So we need something objective, don't we? Because if everything is subjective, we're not always going to be on top of the world. That doesn't mean that we have to, every time we fall into the pits of despair, to believe, well, God no longer is my Father. Why? Because I can believe the promise no matter how I feel. I can cling to the promise no matter what is going on around me. And so I begin there. How do you know God is your Father? By His promise that those who believe in Him, those who believe in Christ, become the children of God. Second, you will know that God is your Father by the spirit of adoption that He has given to you. The Spirit of God dwells within you. Now you say, well, that seems to be kind of subjective. Well, that's true. But we need that subjective experience as well assurance comes from both the objective and the subjective not simply from one but from both of those the spirit of God has been given to all who trust in Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 8 dear ones these words are given Romans 8 14 For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Well, that's a wonderful consolation to have the Spirit of God bearing witness that you belong to Him. And that's a very real evidence and testimony. Sometimes we get very heady. Uh, as Reformed people. And we want to cast aside the experiential element of Christianity. But there is a true experimental element in Christianity as well that we should seek to enjoy and seek God's blessing and favor in. To pray that God would reveal to us that we are His children by the Spirit that He has given to us. It's interesting in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God. This leads to the third, the third reason, or the third way in which we can tell that we are the children of God. 
those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Led in what way? Are we still talking about kind of a mystical uh, kind of experience that I feel led? No, I think that we're talking about something very in context, something very uh, foundational, something very objective, if you will. The immediately preceding verses talk about putting to death the old sinful habits of the old life and putting on and being renewed in the Lord Jesus Christ and in His righteousness. Are you being led to crucify the flesh? It's the Spirit of God who's doing so then. Are you being led to put to death that lack of submission? Are you being led to put to death that discontentment in your life? Are you being led by God to put to death that fear of man that's in your life? And are you being led by God to put on love? and faithfulness and the fear of God and gentleness and kindness and self-control. That's an assurance that you belong to God, that He is your Father if you're being led to do those things because that is the person who has a heart of a child of God. Do you love the Lord's Day? Is it the highlight of your week? Do you love His means of grace? Prayer and reading His Word, the Lord's Supper and baptism and fellowship with the saints. Do you grieve in your heart when you sin against God? as his heart is grieved when we sin against him. That's having a heart for God. When we feel, as it were, what God feels. Are you elated when someone walks in obedience to the Lord? When someone becomes a Christian, do you rejoice with the angels in heaven? A sinner who is returned to the fold. Is it your desire to see the nations brought to Jesus Christ, beginning even within our own Jerusalem, with our own family members, praying, our friends that God brings us into contact with, like Brian's friend George that he was praying for today. Dear ones, if God is your Father, what does that mean for you? Let me give you, in conclusion, six things that that means to you very quickly. If God is your Father, what does that mean to you? It means that He will teach you and guide you and give you wisdom from above. Isn't that what the, the Father is doing throughout Proverbs? 
giving wisdom to his son? That's what every father should be doing with their children. Giving wisdom and knowledge and understanding to their children. But he will teach you. He will be faithful to do so with you as well. He'll give you not the wisdom of this world, but he'll give you that wisdom from on high. That wisdom that is described in James chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's the wisdom God will give to us, His children. Second of all, if God is your Father, He will love you with an everlasting love. In fact, that same love that He has for His only begotten Son, if you can imagine, He will love you with that same love that He has had for all eternity for His Son. John 17:26 says this is Christ's great high, his high priestly prayer he says and I have declared to them your name and I will declare it that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them the love with which you have loved me might be in them If God is your Father, thirdly, He will only and always give you what is good for you. We read that last Lord's Day from Luke chapter 11. If you come asking for bread, He's not going to give you a serpent or stone. God gives to us the Spirit of God. That's the most precious gift that God gives to us. He gives only good gifts to us. Even when we're going through trials, and this is where our faith is indeed tested, God gives to us only what is good. Only and always what is good. And therefore we know, based on Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good to them who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Fourthly, if God is your Father, He will always discipline in love. You can count on that. He will not discipline you because He hates you. He will discipline you because He loves you. It is for your good, as Hebrews chapter 12 makes very clear. It is to see in you the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You see, God is not interested in our comfort, first and foremost. God is interested in our character, that we reflect His image 
that we bear His name with honor and not shame. Fifthly, if God is your Father, dear ones, you need never worry about the things of this life because He will provide all that you need. The latter verses of Matthew chapter 6. God will provide all that you need. O you of little faith, why are you running around worrying whether God is going to take care of this particular need or not? Go to Him in prayer. Go to Him continuously in prayer, but believe that God will care for you. If He provides for the lilies of the field, which are today and then tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more He's going to care for you. He has redeemed and purchased unto Himself with the blood of His only begotten Son. And finally, if God is your Father, He has prepared for you a place in heaven. You are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ now and for all eternity. Your position, dear ones, is that of being an heir of God. What does God own? I mean, what, what is the inheritance? Look around you. Consider all the spiritual blessings. You are an heir of God. And a joint heir with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, dear ones, do we simply rush through the formality of acknowledging our Father who art in heaven when we come to God in prayer? Would it be, perhaps, in some cases, more appropriate for us to pray because of our relationship with God, our stranger who art in heaven? Because we really have not grown to know God as Father. Dear ones, let that be a godly pursuit that you forever seek to know God as Father. To know Him as a gracious, good Father, a loving Father, If God is your Father, dear ones, He lovingly, He freely gave up His own Son to purchase you to be His child. Would you adopt a child if it meant you had to kill your own child? Would you adopt a child if it meant in order to adopt that child, you had to kill your own. I don't know that kind of love. I don't understand that kind of love. But God has that kind of love for you that He was willing to give His only begotten Son, His Son by nature, to adopt you into His family. The longer I'm a father... And now, by God's grace, a grandfather, the more I enjoy being called daddy, 
to hear my daughter this morning on the phone two or three minutes after having given birth to her firstborn child and to cry out, Daddy, does something to a man's heart. But I cannot in any way understand the infinite love of God as my Father. And yet I want to for all eternity grow in understanding that great love. Let's pray. Our Father, our gracious Father, our Holy Father, our compassionate and patient Father, we humble ourselves before you as your children and love and adore you. We praise you for the spirit of adoption that you have given to us. We thank you for your, your promise that is in your own holy word. We thank you for those gracious affections that you work within us. Oh Lord, I pray that you would work in the lives of each and every person present, from the children to the adults, that they would grow in their understanding of you as their father Lord God if there be any present who do not know you as father we pray that you would save them in your mercy and your grace and give them that knowledge if there are those Lord who have come to know you as father but Lord their view is, is distorted and perverted God I pray that you will drive them to your word that your spirit will minister to them that grace to know you as Father. And let, Lord, our prayer life, therefore, be made a cathedral, a garden, which we look forward to enter into, not a time that we seek to flee from, because we come to our Father who loves us. Oh, Father, grant our desire to know you. Grant our earnest desire to, to grow in the knowledge and the grace of Christ, your Son, and of you, our Father, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.